Okay. Well, Tyler, it's really good to see you again. Uh, and you were having a question about um, uh, you. You actually mentioned the, the issue of uh, that you had to. Uh, you couldn't get into a sense of gladness that you felt that the sensations. Can you speak more about that? Yeah, sure. So I, I was uh, feeling. I was negative sensations would arise and I was trying to, you know, as you present, you know, gladden the mind. And the strategy I had been using before was I would try to kind of force will will myself with raw will to be into a, to, a happy sensation. You ought to be happy. <laughs> exactly. Be happy, damn I, it, or I'm gonna bust your chops. I got it. <laughs> yeah, so there, I would get myself into negative feedback loops where or I guess it you know, positive feedback, I should say, where it became, it's, it would spiral and I'd feel even worse. Uh, and so the change I've done recently is I've focused quite a lot on softening and kind of like the, uh, the way it feels, or I guess the metaphor that comes to mind is like, you know how when you're in a high impact situation, like a car crash or something, and if you, if you soften your body and you relax, you don't get hurt as much, right? Well, it's been kind of a, a, a similar, I feel like a similar way of like confronting the collision or the negative feeling directly, but while softening up and like accepting whatever is happening and just like, and it, by doing that, it kind of just passes through you entirely. Uh, and so that's been like a, a, an interesting, like bit of a mind shift for me because it's something I've struggled with for a long time. And. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious if that resonated with you in, in terms of like when you say gladdening the mind, if that's kind of roughly what you're referring to as well. Yes, we have to make sure that the words that we use to convey the information is picked up by the listener in the same uh, mode. In fact, an, an example that happened just yesterday was I pointing out that when I look out and I see that tree, and I, I mentioned the word tree, and you take a concept of the word tree, more than likely you're going to grab a tree that you've seen before out of your own memory and probably a common tree. So when you hear the word tree, you're more than likely going to have the image of a pine tree or a deciduous tree like an oak or a pecan or something like that. To where when I said the word tree, the tree that I was looking at was a fan palm. <laughs> which are very, very rare. But in fact, this is the only, I've got two of them here in the yard and the only time that I've ever seen this kind of pan, fan palm was in a, um, uh, a nature reserve in Sri Lanka. Mm. And so I use that as the example because I'm talking about a tree, but you've got no concept of the tree that I'm talking about. Your concepts are about different trees. <laughs> and so the word tree is the word problematic. I should have used a fan palm because you can imagine what a fan palm is. You've probably even seen photos of them. Mm. Okay, there's, in fact, there's more than one kind of fan palm, but this one's the actual tree version of the fan palm rather than the, uh, uh, the fern version of it. But this is what we're talking about now. What does the word gladdening mean? So we need to have some other words for it, and then perhaps another word that we can use, something that will click for you, would be something like nourishing the mind. Mm 
are nurturing the mind. Mm. Um, uh, the way that I, I, when a child is hurt and comes to mommy, the one thing that the child does not want is medical attention. They want comfort. But in fact, the old saw is, do you want mommy to kiss it and make it better? But mommy's kiss is better than uh, iodine and band-aids. Okay, you get that? And yet in meditation, when I'm using the word gladdening, it's sort of like this, the that's the medicine that's going to cure the, the wound. We don't want to mm. cure the wound right now. What we want to do is nourish, <laughs> nurture the child, the injured child. We're not interested in fixing the child that's broken. We're interested in nourishing the child. Okay, so this is the change in context, is to nourish yourself. When we talk about gladdening the mind, it's very common because we have uh, the habit of thinking in critical thoughts. Oh, it's better that you uh, gladden the mind. Why don't you do that? You should gladden the mind. Well, that's not going to gladden the mind. Telling you to do something, you're not going to get it done. And so we have to take a softer approach. You're exactly right when you use the word soften. We got to soften the approach. Um, you use the word sensation, and I want to make sure that we're using the right kind of terminology with that, too, because normally I use the word sensation as, um, let us say, a touch or a feeling sense sensation of the body itself. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I guess to, to be more clear, what I meant is kind of the secondary effects of uh, there's some kind of feeling, whether it be uh, something in the body, like an uncomfortable posture or kind of an agitation, maybe that's in the mind. And it's more of a secondary response to that of I don't like this thing. I want to get away from it. And then and that's kind of what I was more referring to. And so once I once I have that feeling of this is a bad thing. And then my next my next immediate uh, instinctual reaction is need to get away from it, need to gladden the mind. Then, oh wait, gladdening the mind is putting more, <laughs> making me more anxious and more tight. Uh, and so that's kind of the feedback loop I was getting into. That's exactly why we understand the, the teachings of the Buddha about, aha, I see you, Mara. It's because the normal way is the critical thinking of this, damn it, I caught you again. There you are again. What the hell are you doing here? Okay, that's the kind of approach that you're taking. Yeah. Rather than, aha, I see you. I see you again. One of them has the attitude that something's wrong or bad here. And the other is the attitude of, oh, I just see my old friend again. It, it, it's so funny that you say it that way, because sometimes when I've heard you say, oh, I see you, Mara, the, the way that I uh, have interpreted that is through the lens of, you know, being seven years old and hearing like my parents say, oh, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see what you're up to. And of like a judgmental, like these negative emotions are actually sneaky and nefarious. And well, they are sneaky and nefarious, but something that like you need to be responsible for changing right now. 
I should say, mm-hmm. or something that's kind of judgy, like you're doing something wrong. Precisely. Uh, so oh. yeah, so so I, rather than I think what you what you actually mean, which is like no, I, like I literally just see you, like I just see you, and like uh-huh, that's what you leave it at that. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. One of the ways that I describe this, which is kind of humorous, but it gets the point across, and that is when a tender infant is born. The, the tender infant is nourished by his mom. If mom does not nourish that child, the child will die. The child is completely dependent upon his mom. But mm-hmm. one of the things that mom wants for that child while she's nourishing it and, and keeping it alive and, and helping it to grow is that she wants the normal functions of the body to function normally. And so generally I've seen it into the point that it's a family celebration when that two or three day old baby does his first poop. <laughs> that first big turd, okay? He's had enough milk now. He's got his digestion system actually in operation. The breathing comes first, but that digestion system is absolutely vital. And so that first turd proves from, from start to finish, from the lips to the butt, the system's working. And so we feel good and we congratulate everybody. And aren't you happy that that baby did a turd? Fast (laughs) forward 16 years and that child grows up and now he's a 16 year old and he's having a little problem with his daddy. And so he does the turd right there on the carpet in the front room. (laughs) How's mommy going to respond to to the turd now? It's the same kid doing the same job but the attitude is different. Okay, so when you lay a turd in your mind, you need to treat yourself like that tender infant and nourish it. Oh, we're really happy that that stuff is still working. I see you again, there you are. As opposed to, oh no, you're not supposed to be putting turds on your carpet. That's a no-no, you're a bad dude, okay? And so this is the way that we do it because that's the new habit, the old habit, which was so long ago that in fact you could go so far as to say that part of childhood trauma is that time when the child is moved out of nourishment into childhood. From infancy to childhood, the infant is nourished. The child is put to work. A big time that that happens is when mom gets pregnant again and now she, uh, the kid is four years old, but now he's no longer the star of the show. He's no longer the object of affection and uh, the object of the nurturing. Now he's mommy's little helper. That's the transition, okay? And so here we are now treating the mind like mommy's little helper. You got to do what you're told to do. I told you to gladden up. Why don't you gladden up? Um, uh I saw that, and I don't like it a bit, and I want you to change your mind. Okay, so this is all the critical Mm -hmm. thinking. That's what needs to be changed. That makes sense. Okay, it's the changing of the mind from the the, uh, critical thinking into the nurturing thinking. Everything's okay. Yeah, you just laid a turd. Yeah, this marvelous turd. 
Mm-hmm. I can see what's going on. All right. Mm-hmm. A, a little bit deeper into it. There is actually a point on the path. This is known as the fourth knowledge out of seven on the noble path into the fruit of Sotapan. The part of the stream enterer comes after he's come to the understanding of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda big time. In other words, he is free from the doubt about what is the path and what is not the path, and that he sees now that the only thing there is to do is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. When we see that only all we have to do is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, that becomes the only rule that we've got. What that means now is is that we are no longer trying to hide from Dukkha. We want to see it directly. This is where it comes from to the point that, uh, and it's said this way in the Sutta, that when the young monk has transgressed the Padimok, when he has done some harmful action, when he has broken the rules or whatever like that, then the way that he should handle that is by going to his teacher or to a senior monk or a senior friend and confess with the idea of bringing it to some resolution. And that resolution will be rehabilitation. In fact, the way to talk about it is, is that within the Sangha, there is no almost almost because there are a few ordinary people in there. But there is almost no punishment. No retribution. Other than the exalting, in other words, it's all about the rehabilitation, not punishment. And yet our entire culture is based upon prisons and punishment and go sit in the corner. You did something wrong. You got to make a penance. Okay, so when the Catholic goes into confession, they don't get wiped clean yet. They have to go do 10 or 20,000 Hail Marys or pay $100,000 <laughs> to the church or do something like that as penance. Within the context of uh, the teachings of the Buddha, we get away from the concept of penance or paying back and rather getting over it. So what happens is, is that when we normally do something that we ourselves in our own ordinary life would consider wrong behavior or bad behavior, or that's not me, I don't do that, then when we do do that, we don't want to admit it even to ourselves. We don't like it. We try to hide it. We try to hide our wrongdoing. Here, with the understanding of the practice of Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, we actually want to see that stuff and make friends with it because that's our teacher. Our teacher Mm -hmm. is our wrong behavior. We don't learn anything when we're already correctly behaving. When we're already doing it right, there's nothing to learn. So all Mm -hmm. of learning is done by making mistakes. This is what we call play. That's, that's interesting you said I've had an interesting um, experience over the last three weeks of like I've often struggled with like drinking coffee or, or alcohol uh, and not, nothing nothing crazy but like enough to where it felt like I was trying to cover up a feeling and in the past I would try to like I would judge myself for drinking coffee or alcohol 
but then then recently uh and it, it never worked it never worked but then recently i've just kind of it just became obviously like not like harmful and like it was obviously causing me suffering and it just by not stopping and not stopping myself from like drinking coffee or drinking alcohol it became more obvious what it what it was not doing for me i guess so mm-hmm. I, yeah i just had a very similar experience over the last couple couple weeks with that ah so when when we do see the disadvantage in something we will then naturally want to make a change but we're not talking about it that way we're talking about it at that instant of point of time when we recognize that alcohol is bad instead of congratulating ourselves for seeing that alcohol is bad we fuss at ourselves because we've made a mistake Mm. Okay, why do you fuss at yourself? Well, that's how you were raised. You learn to fuss at yourself because you heard your mom fuss at you and daddy and the teachers and the higher and the other kids. And so we we are a an entire civilization of people who go around fussing at each other. And so naturally we're going to do that on the inside. Because we learned to fuss, because we heard our mother fuss at us, now we fuss at us. We learned how to do that. Monkey see, monkey do. So this is the new thing that we have to learn is, is that we need to stop fussing at ourselves for everything that we do wrong and recognize instead that this is an opportunity. This is a learning situation. Wow, I'm really glad to see you here because I'm not going to learn anything unless I make that kind of mistake. This is part of the nurturing. Okay. If a child is learning to walk, the child will learn to walk faster and easier and not fall down so much if he's got a helping hand, if somebody will hold his hand to help him steady. But if the parent stays across the room when the child is is, uh, trying to walk, and the child is getting no help from the parents. Then when he falls, he gets hurt. He doesn't like it. And now he has resistance to getting to walk again. Because it was painful. We grow up that way so that we want to avoid our wrongdoing because it's painful. Rather than recognizing no Actually, the wrongdoing at this particular moment is not the original wrongdoing. It's the fact that now I'm punishing myself for having the wrongdoing. So now there's two issues. Mm. The first one is the wrongdoing. The second one is the wrongdoing of the punishment rather than the nurturing. If you want to nourish yourself even when you've caught yourself doing something wrong. This is what we mean by, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see the mistake that I just made. But I do that in a nourishing, friendly, happy way. Never mind. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start over again. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a lot of clarification. I appreciate that. I'm glad I, uh, I- I probably said that in the beginning, but it 
needs to be said number of times. This is <laughs> no, the kind it's, of it's stuff helpful. that really needs to soak in. So it needs to be done over and over and over again to talk <laughs> about you have to nourish yourself. Become your own best friend. I I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm unlearning so much from the last 28, nine years or 29 years. So it's very, very helpful. I um I, I have a another question that's um a little bit off topic, but it's okay to switch gears a little bit. Uh you know, I've been trying to, you know, another another thing we talked about in our last call was using other objects of, of meditation, like during other tasks. So for example, like, you know, you're washing the dishes and you might be focusing kind of like on your hands, the sensation mm-hmm. in your hands and using that as your object. And, and I think a lot of times that feels straightforward, especially for like physical tasks, like for walking, I, I focus on like the sensation in my feet, for example. Um, but the one that, the thing that I sometimes struggle with is when I'm engaged intellectually with something, like if I'm like reading or um, talking to somebody or watching something, I find it hard to like, I'm not sure what my object should be in, in those moments. Okay. Actually, it depends upon the circumstances, and you just made two different circumstances. So let's talk about Mm. reading for a moment. Mm. I would recommend uh, to find some anchors in the text. And an obvious anchor is the paragraph. Another obvious anchor would be the page. Okay. This is what we mean is when you get to the next paragraph or as you start this new paragraph, the question that you're going to ask is, did I get out of the last paragraph the intention of the author? In other words, did I actually read it and understand it or did my mind uh, have the eyes go down every word while I was thinking about other stuff or only half paying attention to it? Hmm. Okay, that that's a very interesting habit that we develop, that we start thinking that we're reading, we start reading, the eyes continue to read, but the data does not get mixed in. Here's another example would be um, listening to the uh, to an Internet broadcast. Are you really interesting in it or not? Now, one of the things that we can do with this in order to understand consciousness is to have consciousness moving back and forth between two things to the point that you can keep track of what's going on with both of them. An example of that would be listening to a news broadcast or something like that, an intellectual item that you're listening to while you're looking at something else. And possibly the more difficult one would to read. Can you actually read an article that's on one topic while you're listening to someone talk on a different subject? The answer is no. What you can do is go back and forth between the two, back and forth between the two. Can you, in fact, keep track of the fact that you can do this, that you can move the mind from here to here so that you can get this sentence this guy said and then get back to the text so that you can read the next sentence? That's an eye opener to try that because we really recognize, yes, the mind can only do one thing at a time. You can't do both things all together at the same time. You've got to move back and forth between the two. And that's a fairly good training is to watch how you're moving back and forth. Or if you're just reading, use these paragraphs 
to to wake up to say, did I get what I was reading? Or was I thinking about something else when I was reading? Mm. That's easier to do with text than it is with listening, because we can just listen and, and get lost and in thought. But with reading, we can have that paragraph. As an anchor so that as you begin to read, you can actually reteach yourself to read. Hmm. And I guess just to make sure I understand what you, what you mean by anchor with the analogy or with the anchor for normal Anapanasati be uh, the space in between your inhale and exhale. That would be one or you could actually just say the entire breath sequence. So that you have mindfulness on the in breath, you have mindfulness on the out breath, but you don't have to have mindfulness uh, for the breath, the entire in breath. Just one or two mind moments of sati to make sure that this is a long, deep in breath, and then the rest of the breath will be there for other mind moments. But by the time that you have the out breath, you want to come back and have mindfulness of this long out breath. So you begin to pay attention to the breathing while at other mind moments, other things will be happening. Oh, that's that's actually really interesting. You said that that because uh, something I've also been struggling with is sometimes I feel like I'm trying to be too laser focused on my breath and it feels like I'm trying to have like single pointed focus on my breath and I'm like kind of shedding out other sensations that are arising during that moment. So but if I think I understand what you're saying, you're saying like, well, you know, what, what you really need to do with Anapanasati is that make sure you have these mind moments at these anchor points, whether it be like, you know, the start of your inhale, the start of your exhale. And that's really more to anchor you and make sure that your mind's not drifting everywhere. But then the rest of that space, you, you can use that for all these other sensations that are happening. Mm -hmm. exactly. oh, oh, my God. OK, this that, that is a, a huge clarification for me. So that. I appreciate that. Excellent. Okay. okay, this is why we're talking about an opening, not a closing. But most Western mentality, especially when they hear the word concentration, they think of closing down to take away. In other words, I'm not supposed to do anything except just watch only the breath. Yeah. Okay. But um, actually, the word samadhi is not the word concentration. The word samadhi has a completely different meaning than concentration, and yet is typically translated as concentration. There are elements of, of concentration if we uh, expand um, the definition of, of concentration, but when we do, a possibly a better word would be to focus. When the, when the teacher says, concentrate on the work that you're doing, what that would mean would be to focus on it. But we want to focus on all of the aspects of the work. So what happens in uh, concentration meditation is a shutting down. Hopefully that you're shutting down the mind, but in fact, what we're also doing is shutting down all of the senses. What we're looking at doing here is keeping the senses alive, keeping them open. That in fact, Anapanasati is all about paying attention to the breath, which means we're paying attention to the body, which means we're paying attention to sensory input. Well, the same thing is true when you're reading. When you're reading a book, 
that's actually sensory input. Are we going to be paying attention to the sensory input and processing that? Or are we going to get wrapped up in just processing, which is what we're doing when we're thinking? And so we want to come keep coming back to the senses. To come out of our head into yeah. the body means to come out of the uh, the mind that's not paying attention to the senses because it's doing all of the internal work of thinking. And so the way that we're getting started is, is to come into the here now. And the only way that we're going to have any here now is with the with the senses, with the eyes, the ears, this, the the input that we're taking in right now, rather than reprocessing and rehashing old information that we had from a long time ago or the past. And that's what mm. that's what thinking and conceptualization is all about. Just like when I used the word tree and you had an image of a deciduous tree. Mm. Instead of the tree that I was looking at, which is in the tropics, I'm thinking because I'm looking at a tropical tree, but you're not in the tropics and you don't have tropical trees in your tree bank. Mm. OK, so here that we need to see that the mind is doing that, too. But the way that we do it is by beginning to pay more attention to the sensory input. We begin to pay attention to the feelings that we have right now. We pay attention to the breathing. We pay attention to the body. And we also begin to pay attention to the other senses. For instance, when you're listening, to make sure that you're actually listening. You're following what somebody's saying. Now, normally when people are listening and talking to one another, Neither one of them are actually listening to the other person. Each one of them is thinking about what they're about to say next. Rather than actually listening. So you could say then that Anapanasati or be here now. Part of that would be learning to pay attention to someone when they're speaking, because when they're speaking to you, they're speaking to you in the here now. And so listen to what somebody is saying. This is why I'm saying to start to play with these senses in the sense, can you move back and forth between the eyes and the ears? Because that takes conscious effort to do that. And so we're actually building up a skill of one's right effort to be able to manage which sense am I going to be operating with? Am I going to be, because we've got six. And I'm not saying that one is bad over the other. I'm saying that we need to learn to manage and operate each one of them. So that when we're in conceptualized thinking, we know that we're conceptualized thinking. When we know that we're in uh, sensory input, or when we're in sensory input, we know that we're in sensory input. A good example of that, and in fact, this is, some, this is almost a secret. And that is, begin while I'm talking to you to watch my eyes. And then watch the eyes of other people that you're talking to. Notice that there's going to be a difference because let me give you a demonstration. Many people, when they're trying to think of something. Did you see me do that? Mm -hmm. oh, well, I wasn't paying attention to you. I had gone inside the mind and people will have their eyes divert like that. And they're trying to think of something to say to you, but look at the eyes going. 
Banner and Grund are the ones who uh, made that uh, very important. But what they were thinking was, is that, oh, it depends upon the direction that a person looks off. We'll tell you what's in their mind. That's not true. We don't know what's on somebody's mind. What we do know is, is that they are in the mind. They're not in the present moment. That when you're actually con uh, communicating and contacting with somebody in the present moment, you're looking at them. You're watching them. You're taking in data from them. Even if they're speaking or not speaking, they're still there. And so when you're talking to someone, look at them. Keep track of their reactions and responses so that you can see them nodding their head or shaking their head or furrowing their brows because that shows confusion. Knitting their brows, which is different. That means that they don't like what you've said. And so this is actually a skill that many people, especially charlatans, get used to. Salesmen actually want to pay attention to your reaction so that they can get you to do what they want you to do. Okay, so that means that the guy who is going to be moving the magical balls around wants to do it when you're not looking at his hand that's going to be doing the stuff. That's why if he wants to do something with his left hand, he's going to make a lot of motion with his right hand to get you to look at that so that he can do what he wants to do with his left hand and you didn't see it. It's not necessarily that the hand is faster than the eye, it's the fact that he has been able to distract you intentionally. But if you're paying attention to what's going on, he's not going to, you're not going to get so easily distracted. So this is where we can do that when we're talking to other people, when we're listening to other people. Pay attention to what your own body is doing. In the sense, of, are you looking at somebody or are you looking down and trying to think about something that you're going to say or off someplace or, or can you hold eye contact? Just like you see me intentionally holding eye contact with you. Except that that's a skill that has been developed over time, but I had to develop that as a skill. Because I knew about it a long time ago, that that's actually one of the secrets of the spiritual path is to pay attention to people when they're talking to you when you're engaged with people you've got to look at them you've got to pay attention you've got to be there with them okay well when you're reading a book you got to pay attention you got to be there with it but the mind wants to wander away we read something we like it very much it gives us an idea it gives us a thought which means we're no longer reading know that and know that that's what the mind is doing. So that you can go back to that other paragraph that you had started reading, but that now you're thinking about the book that you're reading rather than actually reading the book. So we're beginning to pay attention to what the mind is doing, but that's really going to be hard to do if we're judging what the mind is doing also. So this is much more an investigation of really beginning to see what the mind is doing. Aha, I can see you. Aha, I see what's going on. Now, later one's right effort is going to be to see that that whatever we were doing was unwholesome and we can change that. And the whole point then is, is that the unwholesome in this case 
was being that we weren't paying attention. That we were being critical with ourselves instead. Like the thought of you ought to gladden the mind. Instead of gladdening the mind, we are hard on ourselves. Look at there, you're not gladdened. Why didn't you get gladdened when I told you to gladden? We need to see that process too. And see that it's not nurturing. And then we can say, oh, never mind. It's okay. And then now we're changing the thoughts that we have from being critical into nurturing. But we have to pay attention to it. This is one of the reasons why we want to practice sometimes in seclusion is so uh, that we're not distracted by all of the stuff that's in so that we can actually focus the mind on what the mind and the body are doing and we can stay more or less in the here now. But we're not concentrating because in fact concentration almost always has the quality of work. Struggle. Grasping and clinging and holding tightly lest it slips out. Okay, so let's recognize that tightening up that clinging and holding to things and relax the mind. Relax the critical thinking and come back to the point. Everything's okay. Everything is fine. Yeah, I can pay attention. Yeah, I can watch. And by doing so, we become more naturally attuned to the senses. Where we could receive data in the here now. As opposed to just reprocessing old data that we normally do. We go around just rehashing and reprocessing the same old data all the time. This is what we call worry. We worry, which means that we just keep the same things going on over and over and over again, but we're not aware of that. So by uh, paying attention or having the idea, oh, I'm going to actually look at what my senses are doing. I'm going to start paying attention. Am I in the mind sense or am I in the eye sense or am I in the ear sense? Am I in the taste sense? And, and that brings us into eating food. So that when we're eating food, that bite, we should only do one thing, and that is eat that food, which means we place our awareness inside the mouth and we feel the texture and the taste of the food. One of the things that we do while we're chewing is we intentionally separate the juiciness from the uh, uh, the firm parts. Like when you chew a particular, uh, let us say, kernel of corn, when you chew it, you're now left with two things, the chewing, the pulp, and the juice. And so start watching what how and and watch the swallowing of the juice before we swallow the pulp. While we're doing that, that means that it's a good idea to set your utensils down and stop playing with your food while you're chewing. But most of us, while we're chewing, we're getting the next bite ready. We're so greedy for the food that we're getting the next bite ready. And many times we're puffing that next bite in before we're even finished with the food in the mouth. So one of the ways of practicing, and they because it's a rice-based diet, they talk about it in the sense of rice, that you don't take the next bite. 
until the last grain of rice is out of the mouth and down the gullet. And when the mouth is empty, now I'll pick up the utensils and cut the next piece. Or now I'll put my hand back in the bowl and get the next morsel. And that while I'm actually chewing, I spend most of the time. This is actually will slow down your eating quite a bit because we do double duty. We fix the bite while we're eating. We're fixing bite number two while we're eating bite number one. Now we're only going to get, we're going to do it in order so that we're actually really paying attention to the deliciousness of the taste of the food, uh, the texture of the food, uh, rolling around the taste of the food. And so we put a lot of attention into the mouth and guess what? Your food will be much more enjoyable than if you whoop it down. So this is all about coming back into the senses. This is another way of, of talking about it is there's a sense called a proprioceptic system. And that the proprioceptic means it's that we're aware of the postures of the body. Right now, without looking down, you know exactly where your feet are. You know where they are in relationship to the floor. You know where they are in relationship to the chair. You know everything and you already know that you don't have to look at your feet to do that. But in fact, very, very few dancers ever really need a mirror. It's only in very, very fine adjustments. But normally dancers know exactly where their body is. In any particular posture. Why? Because they've been paying attention to it. So dancers especially are in tune with the proprioceptic system. Athletes also become somewhat really attuned to the proprioceptic system. This is what they mean by hand-eye-hand coordination. Is because we don't have to look at the hand, we look at the ball that we're about to catch because we already know where the hand is. And so all we have to, have to do is keep the eye on the ball and catch its trajectory and the hand's going to be there just at the right point in time if it's got the skill. Okay, so we need to learn this proprioceptic system. We need to get in touch with it literally. This is what we mean in the Mahasi method by rising, falling, touching, sitting. The rising is the in breath, the falling is the out breath, the touching is the sense of the body with the touch of the cloth and the air and all of this kind of stuff that's on the surface. But then the rising, falling, touching, the sitting is the posture. This is a proprioceptic. What posture is your body in? Where are your hands? What are they doing? Et cetera, like that. So we begin to pay attention to what the body is doing, the proprioceptic. When we get really um, into it as a practice, that means that we want to, for a while, only pay attention to the hands in the sense of watch what the hands are doing. Get familiar with the hands. Let the hands touch each other. Get familiar with the sensations of the hands. Here's something a lot of people don't know, but the number of neurons on your fingertips, because we're human and all of that, that the human's fingertips has more neurons in it than the eyes do. Well, why can't we see with our hands? The answer is that is because you haven't trained yourself to see with your hands. You can. That in fact, they've had a lot of experiments of having, um, let us say, leads 
uh, lead light emitting diodes that actually um, uh, emit a warmth. So that you can actually feel that particular point is getting warm. You could put a matrix a 16 by 16 matrix in there, have 256 of these, put them on the back. Connect them to a camera and a blind man can learn to see. Through his back. Also, uh, anyone who's done a whole lot of mechanics on automobiles and, and whatnot like that, they become, become skilled at being able to put a screw into, a, uh, into its uh, uh, nut place or the socket or whatever without seeing what he's doing with his eyes. Can feel it all. We can hold an example of that with, with this knife. While I'm holding this knife, I know the difference between the blade that's sharp part and the blade that's dull. That I know that knife completely. Look at how many sensory inputs that I have with touching that knife. Then, in fact, I could sit here and hold this knife and touch it and, and make that a meditation. Wow, what a marvelous thing the senses are that we can feel that thing. And I know exactly how every inch and every individual aspect of that knife without looking at it with the eyes because I'm actually investigating it with the hands. So paying attention to what the hands are doing so that we can learn to, for instance, sew. My mother could sew. She didn't even have to look at what she was doing because her hands were right there beside the needles and she could hold. I, I began to watch that. I, I've learned a lot by observation over my lifetime. Um, an example of that is um, this was on Saturday Night Live, and it was a skit that they put together over time. They would have new celebrities come and have a conversation with the host. And while that was happening, someone off the side would throw a big plastic lightweight but large fish at them. And many of the women would just sit there jawboning along and that fish would come and slap them right in the face. But they weren't paying attention. But then you get a Heisman Trophy winner, someone who is a, um, a, a, an excellent quarterback. And you throw that fish at him, even from the side. And he does, I mean, it's really, really out of the corner of his eye. And he's talking and that fish is thrown and he grabs that fish. How can he do that? Well, it was a skill that he developed of hand-eye coordination, which he meant that he was looking and could see it. And he didn't even have to look at what his hands was doing because he was already looking at what his hands was doing from the inside, the proprioceptive, not from the outside. Okay, so this is an important quality of beginning to understand what our senses are so that we can pay attention to what the senses are doing. And so when you remember that we can say, aha, I can look at my hands now. Aha, wow, this feels really nice. Just to, just that sensory touch. Because many people will have habits with their hands that they're not even aware of. Picking at the fans. A lot of a lot of people will pick uh, the cuticle. They'll pick their fingernails. They'll bite their fingernails. They'll rub. They'll do a lot of stuff that we start doing is childhood and we do it absent-mindedly or we're not watching what we're doing. 
And so paying attention to the hands means that now you are in control of the hands rather than letting the old reptilian part of the brain do all the control. Now we're putting frontal cortex in there so that we could really pay attention to what the hands are doing. All of this has to do with the right here now. So in fact, when we're talking about the body, I just opened <laughs> what you might have thought was a new chapter in the book, and it winds up being a whole section of a library <laughs> in the sense of you got to watch what your eyes are doing. You got to start looking at what the inside of your mouth is doing, especially when we're talking and eating food. You got to lock in what the hands are doing. And so this whole idea of getting in touch with the body is a whole new wake-up experience because there's so much going on with the human body that we don't pay attention to when we're thinking. So this is Anapanasati for you is in fact is using the body as an anchor to come into the here now and the only way that we can be in the here now is at the, in the senses, our sensory input that's happening right now as opposed to thinking about things and conceptualizing, which means that we're dealing with the past and the future. And the idea then is, is that uh, the, the past was dangerous. It has been dangerous. I have been cut. I have been wounded. I have been stabbed. I have been ridiculed, etc., like that. And so the, th the, the past is riddled with dangers. And I remember those dangers, which means I can bring them up and be in a sense of danger just by reminiscing. But generally, the situation is right here, right now, is safe. Think about all the bad things that are happened that have happened to you. Guess what? None of those things are happening right now. Right now is actually quite nice. Right now is okay. The future, who knows what that's going to be. It could be dangerous, especially if my past was dangerous. But right now, there's no danger. And we can relish that. We can actually feel like, guess what? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing amiss. Everything is okay. And if there is anxiety, that normally is becoming coming from conceptualized thinking about the past. And ex there's many examples of this. One of the examples that I, uh, this is actually an interesting one. You're tooling down the road on the way to some appointment. In that appointment, you need a piece of paper or maybe your uh, cell phone to get in the building or something like that. But you're tooling down the road on the way to an appointment and you realize instantly that you've forgotten something, you left it at home. What's going to be the feeling state now? Now we're in a hurry. Before we were just tooling down the road, but then one thought, just one little thought, and now we're in a hurry. We're tense, we're uptight. We turn the car around and we race home to get that object, and then we race back with somehow mentality that we've got to get there. Now with the new plan of having to go gone home and got the item, and I still got to get to, to the office or get to that appointment on time. And so now I'm in a hurry, which means now I'm dangerous out on that road because I'm not paying attention to the driving. I'm paying attention to the fact that I'm in a hurry and I got to get there. Has that ever happened to you? It has, yeah. Yeah, and all it took was just one thought moment. 
Another example of that is, is that um, a bill comes in, we open it, we see the invoice, we take a look at it, the invoice is high, yuck, I don't like it, that power bill is too high or something like that, and so we set the bill down. We don't pay it because we don't like it. But then 10 minutes later, just a flash of that invoice, maybe just the colors of the invoice. You don't even see the invoice clearly because you didn't really see it clearly in the first place. But you did get enough of a mental image so that all we have to do is have just one little thought moment of that invoice. And now we feel bad again. Then a few minutes later, we have another thought of that invoice and we feel bad again until we pick that up and recognize that much of our bad feelings are triggered by a thought that doesn't last very long, but the feeling does. It's almost like that that one thought moment, all it had to do was just flip a switch of adrenaline. And now you've got all this adrenaline flooding into the system. That's the way that it happens. And so we get into a hurry, we get uptight, we get angry, all of that kind of stuff, sometimes with just one little thought moment. But now, with Anapanasati and paying attention to what's going on, we have that thought moment. We can see that and we say, aha, I just saw an image of that invoice. And if I had done it subconsciously, I would immediately start to feel bad because I had the thought of that invoice. Just one little image. But now I can, my mind is fast enough. I can see that image. And, I can, and, and with mindfulness, I can say, aha, I see that. The worst of it would be the matter to is saying, oh, no, I've done it again. I thought of that invoice. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm not a good person. Well, that's just more invoice feelings. Now he's just got a new thought about how bad off he is because he's not practicing. Right. So this is how, and this happens many times. So uh, Goenka talks about it a lot in his uh, uh that's why he keeps saying, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Which means forgive yourself for the fact that the mind has wandered away. Or nurture the mind is even better. Aha, I see that the mind has wandered away. Let's go back to the mind, or back to the breath, and, and have a ball watching the breath. But what do we do instead? We fuss at ourselves. Oh no, you're not supposed to wander away. And that only takes a thought moment, but that one thought moment is now making us feel bad. But when we see all oh, the mind has wandered away from the breath and then the thought of, oh, you should be watching the breath. We can see that thought moment, too, and say, never mind, never mind, just come back to the breath and be easy. So this is why paying attention to what the mind is doing is a good exercise, because a lot of what the mind is doing is very fast a flash. In NLP, they call that a see feel. We see something and we immediately feel it. So we start to see those images in the mind. And recognize that, oh, that's just the way the mind functions. That's the way it works. Am I glad that I can see that stuff or not? As opposed to taking the attitude of criticism, oh, not only do I see it, but I hate it. You're not supposed to do that. 
so one of the examples that I use is the guy sitting there and he's watching some video, he's on YouTube or whatever like that. And while he's watching it, the thought comes, you ought to be meditating. And then the, and then he starts to feel bad. And the next thought is, I don't want to meditate. I want to watch the video. And then the next thought, you ought to be meditating. No, I don't want to meditate right now. And guess what? Now the guy's in bad feelings that he got because of thoughts of meditation. And he's not watching the video. He's feeling bad about not meditating. So he's lost on both counts. A better thing to do is when the thought comes, you ought to be meditating. The answer to that is, ah, yeah, I ought to. <laughs> That's the approach is, is that instead of having that thought as a critical thought, you ought to be doing something followed by bad feelings because you're not. The answer is, yeah, that's good advice. I can do that. I can handle mm -hmm. that. I can come out of the uh, mind into the senses. Then, in fact, that dialogue, you ought to be meditating. Oh, I don't want to meditate. Oh, you ought to be meditating. No, I don't want to meditate. That's all mental anyway. And we're not even in the reality of the video that's on the the TV screen. We're thinking about it instead. So begin to pay attention to that, but not in a critical way, but in a nurturing way that we're in on an investigation here and we really want to see how the mind works. Rather than judging it, it ought to be working this way or that way. This is where the nurturing comes in, is not being critical with ourselves in our investigation to be joyful that we can see it. But we have to remember to do that. We have to remember, oh, I can nurture. Oh, I can be okay. Yeah, that turd's on the floor. Isn't that a marvelous turd? <laughs> the baby has done his business. Isn't that marvelous? So this is the way that we begin to approach every moment. But every moment that we wake up, it becomes a marvelous moment. But the waking up sometimes is difficult because the waking up process becomes critical. Which is exactly what you're talking about. You tell yourself to gladden the mind, but you're doing it in a critical way. Well, then, wow, it's so nice just to relax. So being nurturing. It's all back to that same thing is we got to change the way that we think from being critical on ourselves or having unwholesome thoughts into having wholesome thoughts. That's a major, major change in one's life is to begin to th wholesomeize. <sighs> so nice. Everything's good. That's really, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, go try that. Go play with it. It's a new toy no. to play with. <laughs> to have a non-judgmental, no, yeah. non-critical mind that everything is okay, everything is fine, we got this wired. And eventually you'll come to those kind of thoughts. I can do this. I am really on top of this. I really can pay it. I really like playing with my hands. I really like being in sensory input. 
That's mm-hmm. the kind of thoughts that you'll begin to have. That this is this is doable. I can do this, and it's marvelous. That makes sense. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. No, I'm excited to keep keep going down the path, and I've had a lot of a lot of joy coming from the practice already. And so, yeah, looking forward to keep keep practicing. Yeah, keep enjoying. That's right. Keep enjoying. Keep looking. Keep understanding that. The mind is is fast. The mind is fast. It takes if you're practicing uh, long, deep breathing, it'll take you ten or long or more seconds to take a breath. Five on the in breath, five on the out breath, and two between. That's twelve. That's down to five uh, breaths a minute, or a count of twelve. That gives you approximately a hundred and twenty mind moments. A lot's going on in that 120 mind moments, just in that one span of time of an in-breath and an out-breath. A lot of stuff's going on. Pay attention. (laughs) Look at what you're doing. Start catching these mind moments. You'll begin to see, because a lot of times people will call and say, oh, I'm meditating, but I feel a lot of anxiety. What that means is, is that they're not paying attention to the thoughts that they had that brought up that anxiety. They're not fast enough yet. Mm. So the question is, can you increase that speed so that you can see that thought that gives the anxiety? Because it's not going to last very long. This means now that we need to keep moving with our awareness. So we don't just focus directly on just the breath because we've got the whole Satipatthana. You've got the body, you've got the feelings, you've got the breath, you've got the mind, you've got the mind states, you've got the mind objects, all of that stuff is happening. And we don't want to concentrate on one over the other. We want to open so that we can really see all of what's going on. That in fact, lost in thought and lost in meditation are often the same thing. This is why progress is so slow with people who are trying to go into deep meditation and focus the mind rather than being alert to watch what's happening. So one of the examples of that would be the ninja training. That in fact, ninjas and Zen are very, very close. Hmm. Have you ever heard of a Zen stick? No, I haven't. Okay, there is a particular kind of uh, Zen stick that's made from a stick of bamboo, and they sl- and they pl- make a big slit in it down to a point that's got a hole, and then they shave it out so that the two pieces of the stick of the Zen have a gap, so when they hit together, they make a clapping noise, which makes a lot of noise. So when the Zen master hits the student with the Zen stick, the Zen stick is what makes all the noise that is not really a, a, a heavy-duty hit. He didn't go whap like that. It's just like this. And that whap uh, makes a lot of sound with that Zen stick. So the question is, who does the Zen master hit with the Zen stick? The the students, no? Yeah, which student? The ones who are the ones who are dozing off and lost in thought? That's one group. Who else is he going to hit? Hmm. The ones lost in, in meditation? 
Yeah, okay. All right. So the way that you could say it is all the Zen master has to know is to recognize, does this student know I'm here or not? Hmm. And the student doesn't know I'm here. I whack him to let him know I'm here. I'm right behind him. But if you're paying attention while you're breathing, you'll know that Zen master is behind you. And what are you going to do? You're going to slightly raise your posture. You're going to kind of let him know that you know that he's there. Mm. But if you're not paying attention to the Zen master, he's going to whack you. All right. Is that a concentration meditation or what? No, that's not a concentration meditation. That's an open. That's an awareness meditation. Now, in a more advanced setting, in a in a actual ninja setting, the um, Zen master is going to sneak into the dorm at night with his Zen stick, and he's going to see the various students there sleeping. Who's he going to hit with that Zen stick? Not sure. The one who's still asleep. Because mm. everybody else knows that the Zen master is going to come in the room. You better sleep pretty lightly so that you can wake up when he comes sneaking in. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. When you understand it from that, that indicates that what we're really doing is we're waking up. The whole process of meditation is to wake up and be here now as opposed to being lost in dreams, lost in thought, lost in uh, concentration. So we're so the object is, is to come into sensory awareness. And the better we do that, the faster we can get so that we get down to the point that we don't process much anymore that we see. And instead of see and recognize, we just keep seeing and seeing and seeing and we don't put the recognition phase with too much importance. This recognition phase is called perception. And the Pali is referred to as Nama Rupa, which means we take the Rupa, the real object, and, and give it a name on the inside. In Paticca Samapada, we also talk about it in the sense of the Salayatana or the internal representation. And this takes mind moments to see it, to figure it out, to understand it, and then let that impact us, and that's what we feel. We don't feel because of what's actually out there. We feel because of the interpretation that we've made of it. Mm. So, so is this the same thing as kind of like when I was doing uh, Mahasi method, where like, you know, you use la labels in the beginning, but then eventually you drop the labels? Because things like, are happening too fast. Too, too fast, okay. yeah. The problem, though, with the Mahasi method is, is that they label the unwholesome thoughts without recognizing that they're unwholesome. So the skill then develops is the skill of seeing really what's going on, which means that we can see the garbage better and better. So the Mahasi method has the student beginning to live in his own city dump. Yeah because that's what the mind is doing, rather than cleaning all that stuff out and coming into the present moment and now noting what's actually happening, we're noting what the mind is doing on the inside. This, and they're missing the point about right effort. One's right effort is to not just see what's going on, but to make that change, to be here now. Then in fact, that's what sati is, is to wake up, to wake up to be in this present moment rather than in our daydream.
So that's the distinction in the Mahasi method. But the noting is the same, except that in this uh, Anapanasati, we don't bother to label because we want to get rid of the labeling anyway. Mm, yeah. So there's no real reason to do the labeling. In fact, the noting method is not labeling at all. When you go back to the Pali, it's more of observing. You see, the problem is the English language word note is the wrong mm. word to use describing the Mahasi method. Mm. Because why? Because when we think of the word note, we think of taking notes. We think of notepads. We think in the terms of labeling. Well, that's what we've been doing our whole lives anyway. So we're not doing anything new when we're labeling other than just seeing what's there and then labeling that junk rather than making the determination that, hey, I should be in the here now. Let me come out of my uh, uh, daydream rather than noting daydream and noting daydream and noting daydream and noting daydream because if we do that, we wind up in some sort of dark night of the soul. If we keep noting fear, then we're going to be fearful. If we keep noting our misery, we're going to be miserable. If we keep noting our despair, we're going to be in, dis in despair. But if we can note the suffering and say, hey, you know something, there, there's nothing to be afraid of right now. Things are nice. There's no alligators and no crocodiles. There's no uh, snakes. There's no um, mafia coming in. There's no bears in the woods. There's just no problem. And those are the kind of nurturing thoughts that we want to give ourselves rather than noting the fear. Yeah. That makes sense. So that's the that's the distinction between what we're doing and but the noting method that we're talking about is not the real Mahasi method. It's westernized Mahasi method. It's still Western Buddhism. Mm. Mm. That you go back to old Mahasi texts, back to the 1950s, and, and most of what he's saying is absolutely correct there. But the way that it's wound up being practiced is, is a bit different. That makes sense. Even the Mahasi uh, has that this, this one document that I'm talking about, that's, uh, I think it's an appendix to one of the more modern books, but the students are reading the book rather than reading the appendix. So by the time they get to the appendix, they're missing something. But in this appendix uh, of this uh, thing, that's actually just an old document that was written about 1950, Mahasi talks about that you have to seize the object, confront it. He, uh, the translation at that time was fall upon. And that's a bit of a strange one until we recognize we're talking about falling upon the way that a group of thieves will fall upon a victim. Mm. So a better way of talking about it is just jump on it. you got to jump on your object. you got to jump on it and ride it like a horse. Or another way of talking about it, take control. Seize it. Mm. Grab hold of it. That's going to be an effort. And yet Mahasi in the West, in modern times, we talk about just note the breath rather than seizing it. Okay. And so, and so when we say, when you say like seize an object in the context of Anapanasati, you mean we're both seizing the, um, the sensation of the breath, right? Your anchor point, but also all the sensations that arise in between all of, all of those mind moments, 
you were well, also actually, seizing each of those mind moments. Yeah, right. And in the process, we're actually actively doing something like taking a long, deep breath. That's the seizing or taking control. Right. Mm. As opposed to the Western Mahasi method is just watch the breath or just to note it. To where the real teaching of the Buddha that's even in the Mahasi is no, you've got to seize the breath. That's why the Buddha talks about mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long. That mindfulness here is actually seizing the object. Well, if the object is also the mind at, at a different point of our mind moment, then we need to take that same technique and seize the mind the way that we have seized the object of the breath by controlling it. This is one's right effort to actually seize the mind and change what's in it. But if we see what's in the mind and don't like it, then we haven't changed anything. We're just doing the same old thing that we've done. So we need to know what's in the mind and then make the right effort to change it. Coming out of that critical mind into the nurturing mind, that's seizing the mind. To make it change. Aha, I see you. So this is the way that we look at it, that we actually, um, uh, this, the Anapanasati, the way that it should be practiced, according to the Buddha, is that it's an active meditation, not passive. To where choiceless awareness is a passive meditation. The Mahasi noting system is a, is a passive meditation. This is an active meditation. If you're going to avoid the Zen master striking you with that Zen stick, you've got to take an action. You've got to sit up. You've got to let him know that you're here. Or that you know that he's here. Okay, we've got to make a change. We've got to make an action here. We've got to lengthen the breath. We've got to not just see what's in the mind. We've got to seize the mind and make it wholesome. It's an active process. Guess what? Effort, right effort is part of the path. If there was no effort to it, if you just got passive uh, choiceless awareness going on, that's not the April Noble Path. It's got a piece missing. We got to take the effort. To take, to change things, got to take the effort to make that mind coming out of the unwholesome, because the likelihood is, is that even though you recognize it as an unwholesome thought, the likelihood is the next mind moment is going to be unwholesome, and the likelihood of then the next mind moment is going to be unwholesome, unless you do something. And that doing something means that we got to come, come out of that unwholesome and, and come back to nurturing instead. So that's an actual activity. But oh, you ought to be meditating. Well, that's just ordinary stuff. And I don't want to meditate. That's ordinary stuff. But when you have the thought, I ought to be meditating, now we actually have to take the effort and seize it and say, yes, right now I'm going to take that deep breath and come into the here now and be here now.
Be here now. You've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so that's what it's all about. We got to seize the moment. Carte diem, they say. You got to seize the breath. You got to seize the mind. You got to grab hold of it. You got to jump on it. Confront it. That's the correct practice. This is not a passive meditation. This is an active meditation. That makes sense. <sighs> well, Tyler, you go off and play with this. We've had a quite a long uh, discussion about it. But I think that you're getting the point. Yeah, no, this has been super helpful, and I appreciate you kind of reiterating these things because, you know, it's subtle business and it's easy to misinterpret. So I, uh, I appreciate it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll see you later. We'll see you Friday. Right. See you then. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Really glad to talk with you. This has been great. Yeah, it's been really nice, Amarado. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye.